You are listening to the Concrete Evers Podcast. This is episode 29. And welcome to the Concrete Never's Podcast. My name is Brian Talore. Let me just start off by saying thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to spend a bit of your day here with me. Now, on today's episode, I have a conversation with Corey Corrigan. Corey is the mother of two boys, of which her youngest struggled with mental illness from a very young age. When he was 16, Corey decided to leave her job in the dental industry after 15 years so she could stay home and help her son find his way. Because of this time together, they they experienced a reconnection success. Corey began to help other families reconnect to their children that struggle from mental illness, and together with her son, she wrote a book. And this is her story. Corey Corrigan, welcome to the Conquering Everest podcast. Thank you. It's great to be on here. And you've got the absolute best name in the world. You know what? It's so funny. So many people have said that to me. I was in dental for almost 20 years. And every time I would meet a new staff member or I'd go to a new office or whatever, people would be like, is that your real name? Like, that's seriously the name your parents gave you? And I was like, yes, it is. And I'm like, that's the coolest name in the country. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it just it flows, uh, it flows off the tongue. So... Uh, I'm just going to say, too, uh, so we're currently live streaming. We're live streaming to YouTube, to Twitch TV, as well as the Concrete Nevers Facebook page. I just say that because when I turn this into the podcast uh, in in the next week or so, uh, we want to let those folks know. Make sure you subscribe to YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to Facebook so you can get in on all the live action. But I'm going to go ahead and turn on our chat window, too. So if somebody wants to send us if somebody does log on wants to send us a message then uh then we'll be able to see it hopefully not spam but we'll see all right that's out of the way (laughs) first first question i always ask everybody it's not really a question i just ask uh i guess it is kind of a question go ahead and if you wouldn't mind share a little bit with our listeners and watchers about who Corey corrigan is so i Currently, I'm a, a life coach, I'm an energy alignment coach, and so I help, I work with female entrepreneurs to help them really stay in alignment with their business, and it's an interesting story because I got into this because I was, again, I was in dental for almost 20 years, and my youngest son was struggling with mental health issues, and so I left work to be able to stay at home and support my son through his journey. And in that, obviously, then you have to support yourself with an income. And so I got into being an entrepreneur based on that. And how can I support my son and be at home and still have an income? And it slowly has just evolved into now working with women to stay in, you know, in that excitement of like, you know, I, this is the job that I want. This is the career that I want. These are the people I want to work with and how to determine whether it's something you want or you're just doing it because somebody told you it's the thing you should do or it's the right way to do it or that kind of stuff, right? So I love it because I think a big part of my journey in becoming an entrepreneur, because it had to do with that mental health component, being now to be able to help other women come into that idea of you have that freedom, you have that flexibility to be home with your family, to honor you know, whatever your family needs. And especially now in this pandemic, when so many parents are at home, online learning, all of these other things, it's super awesome to be able to have the flexibility of having your own business and to be able to work from home as your kids need you to be there, you have the freedom to do so. Right, for sure. Let's, uh, let's go back in time just a little bit and and kind of maybe start us off with where, where your story begins. Now, um, what I have, the, what you've shared with me, is it st- sounds like it started around the age of 16. But let's let's go back a little bit further. What was childhood like for you? Did 
Uh, childhood was actually fantastic. I had an awesome childhood. We were all like, my mom is Italian. Um, my dad is British and Irish. So we had a big family. We always had family over family, you know, like people would just pop in and it was back in the day, a before cell phones existed and B when you stopped in, you wanted to visit somebody you showed up. If they weren't home, you got in your car and you went to the next person's house. Right. Our house was always the house people came to, but we always had company over. We always had cousins and, you know, we were a very close knit family. So childhood was fantastic. We always had other people to, to hang out with and play with. And it isn't what it is today. Not that childhood today is not good, but like we were always outside too, right? You weren't yeah. stuck in front of the video games. You were outside playing basketball in the streets and hockey in the streets and, you know, uh, manhunt and stuff like that, where you're like, you're out with your friends versus in the house with your parents, so to speak. So, which yeah. was not good. And then, so kind of getting into your teenage years, you started getting into the relationships about mm -hmm. 16 and it sounds like you didn't have a very good one. Yeah. So when I was 15, I actually is when I met this particular individual. Um, and I was 16 and then moved out of my parents' home and in with uh, this person. He was 14 years older than I was. And at the time, obviously, I was, you know, 16 and I was more paying attention more to the fact that he was like this person who was older and paying attention to me and wanted to spend time with me and how great that was. And what I didn't know um, at the time was that he had addiction issues and mental health issues, you know, and struggles. And so it turned into um, a very, very toxic environment. It was an extremely abusive relationship. Um, and it took me until just after I was 19 to come out of it. And it, not that, you know, it took me three years to realize I wanted out of it. It just took me three years to build up the courage to be able to say, I don't care about what the consequences are to leaving. I actually just need to leave. What did your, what did your parents think about that age gap? Was it, <clears throat> I, I, it seemed, I don't, I'm trying to think back because um, we're close to the same age. I'm a little right. older, but <laughs> trying to think back if it was super taboo back in those days or, or, or not. But what, what did your family think about a 16, uh, 14, 16 year age difference? So he actually knew my family. And okay. so a lot of the groundwork from the beginning of the relationship, um, you know, now in hindsight, looking back, was him laying the foundation of like, don't tell anybody because they're not going to let us hang out. They're not going to let this, they're not going to let that. And so it became this, because like I said, as a child, I was very close with my family. I was, you know, my aunts and uncles were all, were all interwoven into like one household essentially. Right. And so then it was like, I'll pick you up around the corner and drive you to school and I'll pick you up around the corner and drop you off after school. And you know, those kinds of things. And it wasn't until, I was actually in it and my parents obviously did not agree with it, but I was like, you know, at 16 and I say this even to my own children, right? At 16, you probably know the most in your life that you're ever going to know. Cause at 16, you think, you know, it all, you've got all yeah. the answers, you're like, you know, invincible and nothing bad can happen to you. And so even though people would try to tell me this isn't right, it's not healthy, you, you know, that kind of thing. My parents, you know, phoned the police and said, what can we do to stop this? There wasn't anything that could be done. And so it was basically just, you know, waiting for me to come to terms with this wasn't the right thing for me to be in. Yeah. Was You mentioned he had um, some mental health struggles. Was that your first? Because it sounds like, you know, pretty good home life. Mm -hmm. um, maybe mental health wasn't a topic. But was that your first kind of introduction to mental health wounds or? It wasn't, but it was the first time I was aware of what mental health was, I think. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother growing up was schizophrenic. And so we always knew she was schizophrenic, what schizophrenia was. Like we didn't really have that concept of, of knowledge of what it was. But we knew to be able to tell people my grandmother's schizophrenic. We knew she was on monthly needles for medication. And so we knew if she missed her medication, we would know that she missed it. And, you know, it's funny. 
even this last weekend, I was talking to my brother and sister and we were saying like, she was the best grandmother in the country because she was crazy and didn't know what was happening. So mm -hmm. she would get her check and she would take us to the arcade and we would spend hours at the arcade playing the games, you know, the bowling game and the basketball game, mm -hmm. eating pizza. We'd go home. She'd have no money. We'd walk home, which was like across the world to us as kids, right? But we'd like, we'd walk home and then she'd have no money to pay her rent. And my aunts and uncles would all have to pitch in and help out. And we didn't have any concept of that as children. We didn't know any of that. And now looking back in hindsight, we were like, yeah, okay, I guess I can see how that wasn't like, that wasn't good, you know, those kinds of things. But I think the first awareness that I had of mental health and what that is and, you know, how it is so closely connected to addictions and, and those kinds of traumas and problems was with this relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So he had um, addiction issues, he had mental health issues, his mom um, committed suicide and he found her when he was younger. And there was a lot of like, now as an adult, I feel sorry for and can see where like he got caught up in his trauma and his story and you know, all of that. And I don't I don't look at it and go, oh, my God, like, how can this person do this thing? And to me, now it makes sense um, that he struggled so, so deeply. And so, of course, you would want to control another human being. Of course, he would want to control his environment. That's how he found like his way of getting through and coping, too. Right. So yeah. it was the first time I was ever really like, oh, this is this is life. <laughs> I didn't realize those things existed outside of my home until, of course, I was in it. Yeah, <clears throat> pardon me. The and you said you you were in that relationship till nineteen years mm -hmm. old. Just after my nineteenth birthday. <laughs> right. Yeah. What 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 kept you what kept you in in that or do you think kept you into that in that relationship despite the the mental health the addiction? In the beginning, it was um, it was loyalty, right? Like mm -hmm. I. There was a big part of me not connecting really to the mental health component that just thought this human being has never been loved before. So if I show him that I'm different, if I show him that I'm not going to leave, if I show him that I care, if I show him that I, you know, I put it all on me, if I'm good enough, he will be better. Yeah. Um, and then later it was out of fear, right? Like as soon as I started to pull away and go, okay, you're not changing, you're not giving a little bit, you're not like things are not any started becoming abusive, then it was more fear. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to find you here. I'm going to find you there. And I remember there was a time where I was actually at a friend of mine's and I had not said where I was going. I did not say, you know, who I was with or whatever. And all of a sudden my girlfriend answered the phone and she looked at me with this like really odd look on her face. And she said, Corey, the phone is for you. And I was I was baffled because nobody knew I was there, right? Like I didn't tell anybody. And it was him on the other line. Wow. And he said, I know exactly where you are. I know when you're there and who you're with. So don't do this again. And for me, that was that moment of like, oh shit. And I think from that moment is where more of the fear kind of stepped in. And I went, I have to watch what I do. I have to pay attention to this. And it became also this protection of people around me. I didn't want other people to feel that fear and get injured based on hanging out with me. So I started isolating from other people and not going to other people's houses so that I didn't extend my relationship into other people's lives as well. And that's a story that I feel like a lot of, a lot of folks will resonate with because, you know, you're in a relationship and, and there's that caregiver side of most of us that we like you said well if i'm the best version of myself i'm gonna that that's gonna overflow in, into their lives and then uh, when that doesn't work and you start to taper back then you know you either have threats um, like you had or um you know i, I know situations where the, the person's like well if you leave me i'm gonna kill myself stuff like that so they try to lure you in with the guilt but what was it for you? What, when you finally was able, you were able to get out of that relationship. What do you feel was 
your motive motivator for that? Because like you said, you were sounds like you were scared of what he may potentially do, but despite that fear, you still you still found a way out. So I think there was this running theme um, for me of there's got to be something more to life. Like this can't be, I didn't come in here for this shit right here. Like there's got to yeah. be more. And so there was always that search of like, what is, what is out there? What else? This can't be it. This isn't what I, you know, my whole life is going to boil down to like this right here. And I finally got to a point where I said, I don't care anymore. I don't care if you hurt me. I don't care if you hunt me. I don't care if you find me. I don't care. I don't care anymore because whatever that consequence is has got to be a better option than this right here. Mm, yeah. So I left and I went and I stayed with her girlfriend <laughs> for a couple of weeks and her husband was a police officer. So I knew for the most part, like, even if he found me, he wasn't going to come knocking on the door, right? Like right. the person on the other side is not going to be as nice or, you know, as fearful as I was at the time. And, you know, she would come to work with me when I worked my shift so that that way he didn't show up at work and there wasn't, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I moved back in with my parents and, you know, it took a long time for me to slowly get comfortable with, going out of my house unattended, like without somebody by my side so that I wasn't by myself if he showed up. And then he started dating somebody else. And I thought, perfect. This is this is the best thing that ever could have happened because it's going to be somebody else and not me anymore. He doesn't care what I do. And that for me was, I mean, he still did. There were still moments where I got phone calls and I got, you know, other things. But for the most part, that was kind of the gateway for me into my freedom was that somebody else took that attention. Somebody else mm. became that person that I was so easily ready to walk away from for him. Right. So let's let's uh, let's kind of move forward in the timeline. See so you out of this relationship. I imagine it took you maybe a little bit of time to get comfortable with the idea of a relationship again, but. Um, it sounds like you ended up starting a family once you got into your 20s. Yeah. So right out of that relationship, I had the awareness. So there was a moment where I was actually at the doctor's and I had said to the doctor, um, because I was very self-aware, I think, through my whole life. I'm the oldest of four children. So I've always had that awareness of other people and of me. And so I went to the doctor and I said, I think I need some sort of therapy. I need to talk to somebody because this wasn't a good relationship. It wasn't a good environment. And I think I need help kind of processing that. And also so that I don't repeat the pattern. So I don't do it again and, you know, get stay in that cycle of calling in and, and behaving and being in all of these toxic relationships. Right. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office and behind me on the wall was a piece of paper and it had different types of abuse. So emotional, mental, you know, all the physical, sexual, religious, all of these types. And I took the paper off the wall and I looked at it. There was probably 45 different examples of abuse under each of these categories. And I think less than 10 applied to me. Hmm. And so when the doctor came in, I kind of handed her the paper and I was like, this is the first time I'm actually aware of how abusive the situation was that I was in. Oh, yeah. And so I started getting help, but the because the fear was so strong, um, I knew that the only way for me to get from where I was to where I wanted to be was to have somebody who I felt could protect me. And so I immediately got into a relationship with somebody who I thought was big enough size wise that, you know, my ex wouldn't come looking for me. And if he did, that would be his problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah. And somebody who had a big enough mouth that it wouldn't come to physical violence because, you know, one of the things that I learned through therapy is that, yes, you know, domestic relationships generally are the, the man and the woman. And when another person who has any sort of backbone stands up, the abuser usually backs down, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, they're not going to come at another male <laughs> in their face because right. that's not what they do it they don't do it for that they do it over the control when they don't have it it's not they don't care about that anymore and so i got into a relationship with my kid's dad and you know out of that then i had both of my children we were together for 
I think almost five years. And then my kids were two and three when we separated. And your youngest, um, your youngest, he, he ended up suffering from mental, mental health issues. What, yeah. what age, what age did that manifest? So I, I think I started noticing it probably around eight or nine is when I started to notice that um, something was off. He was always super friendly. He was always easygoing, got along with everybody. Like when I tell people about my children, right, my oldest, Zachary, the very first day I took him to school, he went in one door and out the other door and came around the parking lot looking for me. The teachers actually called me and went, you have to come back and get him. He's like, I don't know what happened. Whereas Cody would go in and like, he loved being in school. He loved being around other people and he got along so well with other people. School was fun for him. Zachary, not so much. Like Zachary was very much there to learn, not there to play. And so when that shifted and Cody started having difficulties in the classroom and he wasn't listening to the teachers and he was misbehaving, I think it was around eight or nine when I was like, okay, something's off. But because their dad and I were going through our separation and court issues, that's what I boiled it down to. I just thought, you know, there's just too much for going on at home for him. I didn't, it still didn't occur to me that it was mental health in any way. And I think when I started to think maybe there was mental health, underlying mental health issues, my first thought was, I hope he wasn't, he's not schizophrenic because I knew what that was like for my grandmother. I knew growing up, you know, not in a bad way, but people would say, oh, just dismiss that thing that grandma's doing because that's just, she's just crazy. Just ignore that. And I was like, I just don't want people to talk about my son like that. I just don't want people to think that of my child. Yeah. And so that's where my mind went into that, like, oh, God, you know, it's my family genes or it's something I did or didn't do that now my son is going to have this struggle. What what was what was the <clears throat> diagnosis um, for, for what was he just was it depression, anxiety? What was it for him? Uh, by the time we got him a physical diagnosis, it was severe depression and social anxiety. And he was borderline oppositional defiance disorder, which is a fantastic cocktail to have because anxiety obviously is that like panic. Depression is that not want to go anywhere. And the oppositional defiance disorder is like, I'm going to just kill everything and everyone that enters my path when I'm in the mood. <laughs> like, So it was definitely a struggle. And I, it's interesting because now looking back, those same ways that I dealt with my abusive relationship of like pulling away from people and not letting people into my home and not going into other people's homes is exactly how I dealt with my son's mental health issues. I didn't want people to judge him. I didn't want people to change their opinions of him. So I didn't bring people into the house. I didn't, you know, anytime I made plans, it was, I'll come to you. And if my son was having a bad day, I canceled. I didn't go. And so it was that a repeat pattern of that isolation of, you know, I just don't want people to see what is happening here in my home. So I'm going to take it outside of my home so that you only see what I want you to see. Yeah, I think that and that's for me, I, you know, I <clears throat> I came face to face. So I, I was diagnosed uh, just a couple years ago uh, with severe depression and um, in general generalized anxiety disorder, whatever it's called. But for me, I, you know, as I look back and I, I would reflect back to my childhood, I could see the patterns and the different ways that I, that, that developed. But for so many years when I suspected, I knew like I wasn't, <clears throat> I, you know, I didn't feel right. And it really didn't, for me, it was probably late twenties when I, I, started to suspect that I had depression, but it was the stigma. It's like, I don't want to be called crazy. I don't, I don't want people to just shrug me off because, you know, oh, he's got issues. So, you know, I held on and 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 held that in for so long that it finally, uh, you know, there comes a point where you can't hold it back. But that stigma, I think that scares a lot of people when, when they're dealing with something. They just don't want to be labeled. Absolutely. And I think, too, from society's perspective is that women have a lot easier of a time 
to communicate and talk about their feelings. And I think men in general, A, aren't taught to vocalize more, like you're a man, you know, buck up, keep it together, you know, all of these things. Whereas women aren't taught that. So we keep quiet for different reasons than, than men do. But I think that when it comes to depression, it's hard being the person in it. Like I, you know, I say to Cody all the time, I could never tell his story because I don't know what that's like. But I know as a parent trying to keep people from seeing that because I didn't want people to judge him. And then his fear of people are going to judge me and what are people saying? And, you know, and I think as a boy, as a teenage boy and hormones and everything, he got into this, like, I just don't fucking care. I don't care what people think. I don't care what. And then it became almost a defense mechanism for him where he would just push people away on purpose because if I push you away, then you can't judge me because I've already eliminated yeah. from my life, right? And it, did you say he was eight or nine when this started to kind of manifest? Yeah, so him? it was eight or nine when I started noticing like behavior changes. By the time we got a physical diagnosis for him, he was 16 or 17 but it really hit around like 13 14 is when it became like a like this something needs to be done and i remember he was 17 it was just after his 17th birthday when i had him committed on a form one that's what's called here in canada as a form one and it's like a 72 hour hold for an assessment in a, a mental hospital and you know he had basically left the house and said that's it i'm done you will never see me again. And so when the, the police had him, took him into the hospital, they chatted with him and what have you. That was that pivotal moment for my family where they released him. They said he was not a danger to himself. He was not a danger to other people. They let him go after 72 hours. And he, I think it just kind of all hit him at one one time. And 24 hours after they released him was his third suicide attempt. And so that was my moment where I went, okay, so there's nobody else out there. This is all on me. I have to do this for me, for my son, for my family. And that's when I left work. And I was like, okay, I have to, my career needs to come second to my children. Because up to that point, again, I left my kid's dad when they were two and three. So I was the only source of income for my household. And so there came that point where I tried so hard to keep both things together. And when I realized one thing was being sacrificed and the thing that was being sacrificed was my child, I was like, yeah, I can't, that can't happen anymore. He needs to know that he is number one to me. Yeah. And not only, so not only do you have the fear, right? How am I going to pay my bills? Entrepreneurship is, is, is definitely a um, uh, peaks and valleys, right? As far as, as income. But I would also imagine like, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking at that point in time when you made that decision, I mean, you weren't an expert in mental health, right? You were just a mother that loved her son to the point where she knew she had to make extreme changes. So kind of take us through that journey um, of between you and him at, when when you when you focused all your attention on him. What what was that? What was that like? It was interesting because. Um, after the age of 12, children are allowed to make their own medical decisions. So mm. as far as therapy, which again, I did coming out of my abusive relationship. So I knew the value of a therapist. I knew the value of getting help and talking to somebody, right? Yeah. And so trying to get my son help, the response on the other side was always, he has to agree. And if he didn't agree, then that avenue was closed off. And so we tried multiple different avenues and, you know, we did get a really good psychiatrist, but again, everything is, you know, and I'm sure you ran into this as well. Today, you might feel great. Tomorrow morning's your appointment. You wake up, you feel like shit. You're not going. Yeah. yeah. And there's nothing I can do to force him to go. I mean, at the time he was 17, he wasn't seven. So it's not like I could pick him up and put him in the car. Like, he was 17. He's bigger than I am. He was stronger than I am. He said, no, it was a no. Like, we're not going. Right. You're not going. And I'm calling the therapist going, he's, it's a bad day. It's, he's not doing this. It's a bad day. And from their perspective, they can only do that so many times before they say, well, there's other children who want to come who we need to help as well. Right. So there was that whole 
you know, kind of hot mess happening in my home at the same time that, again, realizing the value of therapy, I went, I need somebody like this is great for him. And I'm doing what I can in searching for what is out there that is going to help him that can do something for him. But at the same time, I need something to help me. I need somebody who, you know, I can bounce ideas off of and come to when I'm struggling and having a hard time so that when it comes to my son, it looks like I have it all together in front of my son. And I had a friend of mine sent me a book from a woman who uh, was going through a very similar situation or had gone through a similar situation. And I said, this is like, that's what I needed. I needed somebody who knew what I was feeling, what I was going through because at the time, if you know, in your head, this isn't my fault. I didn't do this, but your heart, your whole body goes, yeah, you did. You did. What if you did this? And so you almost start cataloging every single thing that you've ever done in your child's whole life. And you go, maybe it was that moment. Maybe it was that decision. Maybe it was that time. Maybe it was this thing. And so it was, uh, she wasn't a therapist. She was a life coach. And so at the time I was like, I don't care. I don't care what you do. I don't care who you are. I don't care what it is. I just need somebody who understands what I'm going through, who's been where I am, who when I say today's a shit day, no, sorry, I can't function, goes, yep, no, totally there. Got it. I know exactly what you're thinking and feeling right now, right? And so in my work with her and in the conversations with her, I learned how to separate myself from my child as odd as that sounds. I wasn't him. He was going through this and I was going through something separate. And then we as a family were going through something together. And so I learned how to compartmentalize each of these things and how to separate what I was doing from what he was doing and how I was, what I was doing and how I was reacting and how I was behaving fed into certain behaviors he had and certain things that he did. And not to say that he wouldn't have done them anyway, but maybe they wouldn't have been 99% of this. Maybe it would have been 60%, right? And so then I started changing my behaviors. I started meditating. I started doing yoga. I started physical activity. I started running. And I started, you know, watching what I ate and, you know, surrounding myself with people that, made me feel good about myself, which now, you know, being in energy work is so super important. Like if you're in a shitty space and you're around people who are constantly complaining and constantly negative, right. that's going to play on you. And, you know, you're not going to get out of that any quicker. But if you are around people who lift you up, who are laughing, who are happy, who are, you know, it does give you that moment of reprieve that you need in those moments, right? Mm -hmm. And it, for whatever reason, however it works out, it did change my son because he started doing some of the things that I was doing. He started, you know, sleep in mental health. Sleep is super freaking important. And when you're depressed, when you have anxiety, when you have all of these things weighing on you, sleep is the last thing that you think is important. And when you climb in bed, your mind doesn't just turn off, right? Like everything is still playing. <laughs> So then I started, he would say to me, what can I do to sleep? And I'd start getting him into meditation at nighttime. And then the more sleep he was getting, the better he was feeling the next day. And he started to notice if I do these things, then I have better days. They weren't the best. They weren't, you know, he wasn't back to normal, so to speak. But he definitely was functional. He definitely was manageable. And things started to get better. And, you know, Later on, him and I wrote a book together and we sat down and we went over like timelines like what happened and what was this and what was that. And, and I said to him, you know, what can I share and what can I not share? And he said, you can share anything that helps other families avoid things that we went through or help them feel like they're not alone in this journey because we're not the only family who went through it. He's not the only person who's ever struggled before. Yeah. And that's so important that not feeling, because when I was going through my depression, I felt totally isolated and, and, and I did have a hospitalization stay. I stayed for five days and, and, and even though that was super scary and I didn't want to be locked up, you know, um, 
the younger generation won't uh, won't remember, but the the Jack Nicholson uh, <laughs> one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's all yeah. I thought on the drive, <laughs> on the drive, because you know I had to have somebody come. They drove me to this place, right. and it was like I was almost I wasn't in a cop car, but it looked like it felt like a cop car, and right. I just kept that movie was playing in my head, and I'm like, oh, this is gonna be, what is this gonna be like? But when I got there and I got around, <clears throat> I started to meet all these other broken people and, and although they had their own types of brokenness that there was just there's a bond that gets created but you had said um you know something like when, when you're depressed you know some days are just shit days and that's that's so true because when i went through my depression so funny thing is is I, about the age of 40 i i got into speaking publicly. And then I was going down kind of the path of motivational, inspirational talks. And, and I did a lot on, I, I spoke a lot on positive, you know, thought of positive or, you know, positive mental mindset. And, and, and then all of a sudden I got depressed and, and I was just like in bed and I knew all the things that people tell you to get up and exercise, eat right, this, do this, get yourself. And, and for, you know, almost two years, it just, I knew what I needed to do, but I couldn't do it. The, like it, there was, there was just this block that I would just be in bed all day and all night. And then I think what really changed for me, and it sounds like this kind of changed, this is what happened with your son is when he saw what you were doing, he started finding little victories. Cause I think when you're really down and out, you want to look for, you just want to be cured. You just want, I'm going to yeah. wake up and be fine. But for me, what I, I started is I said, okay, I've been in bed better part of a year. I've been laying around sleeping, you know, tomorrow, instead of trying to be cured, I'm just going to, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to get up and take a shower before eight o'clock at night. Yeah. And and I did it. And then that was like a small victory. And so it kind of sounds like that's happened to him is once he got into meditating and he was able to find himself to sleep, then that's, that's, that's a big deal when you're going through yeah. something like that. Uh, so when, when, as, as you went on, cause how old is he now? He will be 20 next month. Okay. And so how, <laughs> how has his life transitioned? Um, you know, from 15, 16 to, to, to now, where, where, is he still struggling with the mental health? Or is he... It's amazing because it seems like it was such a long process. And yet mm -hmm. trying to pinpoint like the time that things turned around is so difficult. But at some point, you know, he was 18 for sure, because that's when we wrote the book. Um. But there was at some point where we just kind of looked and we went, we actually don't have these problems anymore. We're not going through these things. Like you don't even notice you're not doing it because you're so used to in that struggle going, I just got to make it through dinner. I just got to make it through this TV show. I just got to make it to this time. I just got to make it to this time. And, you know, it's interesting because you say, I just got to celebrate that one thing. I just had a shower before eight o'clock tonight. It's what I teach in my coaching today. I don't care, you know, when I teach gratitudes, I say to people, I don't care what you celebrate. Celebrate the fact that you woke up today. Celebrate the fact that you have warm, fuzzy socks. Celebrate the fact that like, you got dressed, you put pants on, great, good for yeah. you. Like, but gratitude is that it being in that space. And so being in that moment where you flip from, I just have to make it through this. I just have to make it through this. I just have to get through this. I just have to get through that to now being in that space of, I just did this. I just did that. I just did this. We got through dinner. Nobody yelled. Nobody screamed. Nobody cried. Nothing was broken. And you almost, now looking back, I realize it was the gratitudes. But I didn't put that together then. I didn't realize that I was doing that and being in that space of changing my mindset and concentrating more on what was going right than going wrong until all of a sudden one day, we're looking back and we're like, we don't even know when it really changed. Yeah. We don't know when it stopped. And I mean, I'm happy to say, and I know this is not the case for most families or for a lot of families, he doesn't struggle today. I don't 
have concerns about his mental health today. He is happy. He laughs. He loves life. He has a two-year-old son. He is an amazing father. He doesn't like he doesn't struggle the same way or even close to the things that you know he was going through years ago. And even though it's like three years ago or four years ago, it seems like it was a totally different life for us yeah. back then than it is now because he is so disconnected from where he was to where he is now. Yeah, and that's and that's what happened with me is it was just one day. I was sitting there and I'm like, man, I feel really good today. And, and I, th I think you're spot on when you say it's learning to appreciate the small wins. And because that's, that's where it's really, when I think back and I'm like, well, where did it start shifting for me? It is when I, and it wasn't only on my own accord because I did have, I did have a coach or, a, you know, a, a therapist that helped me along. But uh, one of the things he told me is he said, just so, you know, you, you got to get up and celebrate the fact that you woke up. It seems so, you know, and you're not going to feel like it necessarily in your mind, but you got to start celebrating the small victories. And so every time I, every night I'd go to sleep or, or usually not sleeping, I'd be at three in the morning. I'm like, you know what, when I finally do fall asleep and wake up, I'm going to do this. And, and then I just celebrated the shit out of it, you know, and I, I had a really good time with just these little things. And eventually those little things turned into big, you know, big wins. And then I, I felt great. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Let's introduce your book and, and what will uh, folks, you know, what, what can they expect to get out of that? So the book that I wrote, again, I can't really speak to Cody's journey so much because I, I wasn't there. Like, I'm not him. Right. Um, so the book was really how I connected back to my son, how I discovered, you know, not all of his problems per se or what he was going through was because I did something wrong or because I was a bad person or a bad mother. It also was learning how I contributed, like I said, right? Mm -hmm. My stories were at play in all of this. And so, of course, being with my son, who's borderline oppositional defiance disorder, triggered me and my trauma from being in an emotional abusive relationship. And so looking at all of that abuse and then projecting that onto my son, of course, he that escalated anything that he was doing. Yeah. And so I think just those realizations of of what we do and how we contribute to different situations. And then it's that idea of like you've isolated. You don't go out, you cancel your plans, you don't let people in, you don't talk to people about what's going on in your life. So how do you come back out of that? How do you start now reaching out to friends that you shut off? How do you start communicating with people that you long ago shut out of your life and, you know, all of those things and so the book is really just about that part of the journey and how in that journey i allowed myself and my son the space for him to be able to say these are the actions that i own these are the behaviors that i and rather than blaming them on everybody else right like you did this to me i did this because you did that it gave him the space to actually sit and think about what part of this he was able to control. And yes, there are some things you can't control, right? And like you're saying, you in your mind, you're like, all I have to do is just get out of bed and have a shower. But your body in that moment seems to have its own brain. And so this mm -hmm. is going get out of bed and have a shower. And this weighs 950 pounds and isn't going anywhere. Like, the two are not communicating. And so there were things that Yes, in those moments, Cody could not control, but there were things in those moments Cody could control. And so it gave him the space of being able to figure out what he could and what he couldn't. And what he could control, he started to control. And one of the other things that I talk about in my book is, you know, I think just as a society, we label people based on their emotional behavior. You are bad, you're doing bad things, you're, you know, all of these things. Why are you angry? Why are you sad? We don't say to people, why do you feel this? Like you are not your emotion. Right. You have an emotion. You feel an emotion. You're not an emotion. You're a human being. And so when we take that out and we say, you are you and you feel angry, 
Why do you feel angry? Why do you feel sad? Why do you feel these things? It does give you that appreciation for like, oh, wait a minute, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling that? And so then you're able to say, and it goes into almost that control piece, right? I'm angry or I feel angry because of, and what part of that did I contribute to? What part of that can I control so that next time I can't? And a big part of mindset stuff that I teach now is giving your mind alternative solutions. Like it's great to say, I shouldn't have done. And so the next time you do it, your mind goes, oh shit, we shouldn't be doing. But if you don't give it an alternative solution, it doesn't know how to flip you into a different thing. So instead of saying I shouldn't do, because you can't change the past, you've done it, it's there. Now turn it into like, I could have done and give yourself options, healthy options to say, I could have walked away, I could have gone to my room, I could have done this, I could have gone for a walk, I could have you know, called my so-and-so. So that the next time you're in that situation, your mind automatically goes, no, we could be doing right now. We could be going for a walk. We could go do this. We could go do that. And maybe five out of time, 10 times, you're not going to take up the healthier option. You're still going to engage. Right. At least five out of 10 times, you're going to take the healthier option. And then when you realize you're feeling better in that, then, you know, it's seven out of 10 and eight out of 10 until like, you know, Cody and I, you look back and you go, when did I actually stop making that decision most of the time? You don't know because you're just so focused on I got to do this right now, right now. Right. You're, you're building you're building on to those newly formed skills, even though they're not really newly formed. They've always kind of been there, but you're building yeah. on to it. The, uh, so the book's called The Stranger in My House, How to Reconnect with Your Child uh, with Mental Illness, Illness right? Yeah. And that's available on Amazon. There's going to be links to, you know, folks can check that out. Um, also going to have a link to your website. So uh, I'm going to bring your website over. So you're, oh as, I, as, I, as I look at. Uh, I'm in the midst of reconfiguring the website. But yes. Yeah, I just, I've, when I, when I, when I was reading through it, it, you know, you talk about kind of your coaching and, and here's, these things caught my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, the energy healing, right? And is yeah. it, it and Reiki or Reiki? Yeah. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Yeah. And then hypnotherapy is a part of um, part of. This. So let's talk about your coaching. Uh, what does that look like? So somebody is listening to this show. They're connecting with you. They feel that energy, and they say, "Okay, I need to reach out. I want to be coached by Corey." What mm-hmm. can they expect? Because some folks like hypnotherapy like whoa what is that you know what is energy healing so give us an idea of the it's interesting because how it all started for me um again because i was working with a life coach uh one of the major things that she taught me about me and it's probably one of the biggest parts of what i do in coaching today as well is really teaching people how to listen to your body, how to hear what your body is saying, what is right for you, because what is right for you isn't necessarily what everybody else is doing. And so it's nice to be able to say, oh, just do this thing and your life will be perfect. Great. But that thing may not work for you. You know, meditation isn't for everybody. Yoga isn't for everybody. The gym isn't for everybody. So you can't have black and white, like do it this way. And this will, you have to have the gray area. We live in the gray area, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that she taught me was like the signs and paying attention to what my body wanted or didn't want. And it was interesting because in paying attention to that, multiple conversations about he came up and I had no idea what it was. And I had no idea how to explain it. I had no, I had never done it before. And somebody that I knew Uh, through a dental office that I had worked in, um, reached out and said, hey, I'm doing a Reiki practitioner class. If you would like to be a part of it, this is when it is and what it costs and blah, 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 whatever. And so alarm bells went off and went, okay, there's something here. Mm -hmm. So I went into it and went, I'm supposed to do it because it wouldn't keep coming up if it wasn't something I, you know, am supposed to do or should be curious about or whatever. 
And then I opened up a Reiki practice. And so I started doing Reiki with people. And what I found doing Reiki is that I actually talked to people more than anything. So being able to connect into somebody's energy, I was able to feel things and say to people like, are you, you know, your head is a little bit foggy. Is there, you do have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of this and that. And it was able to talk through some of those things and offer people different solutions that were specific to you solutions. They weren't the same things I said to everybody. They were different things. And I would say to people, I don't know why I'm saying this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Does this make sense to you? And they're like, yes. You know, and I just did it last night. I have a mastermind. And I said to one of the girls, you know, like in bowling, and I have no idea why I'm using bowling because I'm an awful bowler. And she goes, I go bowling all the time. And I was like, see, well, there's like, I don't know why I say the things I did, right? And so I, then I started enjoying the coaching aspect. And so, yes, I still sent distance Reiki or I still did Reiki with people. But most of my business was about the coaching and I just used the energy healing in the Reiki as a method, like a tool in my toolbox. And I started realizing that a lot of what people come up against, a lot of what is dealing with in the coaching were limiting beliefs. And the reason I, you know, a lot of people, there's this conversation about limiting beliefs versus beliefs. Yes, they're all beliefs, good, bad, or indifferent. It's, it's a belief. It becomes a limiting belief when it stops you from behaving in a certain way that is beneficial to you. And so when people think of hypnotherapy, people think of like stage stuff, right? You go up on stage, you act like a fool, you clap like a chicken, you go back, you sit down, life is grand. <laughs> so a lot of times, and my sister said it to me, right? No, I'm not gonna let you hypnotize me because I don't want you to make me clap like a chicken. At the end of the day, a hypnotherapist can't make you do anything you don't want to do. What hypnotherapy does, if you think about almost like a, a car amp, again, I have no idea why I'm using this example, but it just amplifies what already exists. So the amp itself doesn't create the music. It just amplifies the music that already exists from the radio. And so hypnotherapy does a very similar thing and it takes a want and a desire. I want to do this thing, but I keep running into a roadblock. I keep you know, ending up at the same path over and over again. I keep doing the same thing over and over again and I have no idea how not to do this thing. Cause I'm trying really hard, I just keep failing. And New Year's resolutions are the prime example. How many years in a row do people make the same New Year's resolutions, right? Yeah. Because there's a limiting belief there. There's a belief in the background that is running on autopilot that is stopping you from doing the thing you want to do. And so hypnosis actually just amplifies that desire. It takes away that, that block that the limiting belief is, is stopping you from doing this. And it gives you the power to just make the changes, to just be the person you want to be and do the thing you want to do. And so this concept for me was like mind blowing. I was like, this is this is what people need right here. People need that help. It isn't just about, you know, OK, go and journal. Yes, journaling helps. Yes, meditation helps and physical exercise and diet and, you know, therapy is super important. But at sometimes you've exhausted all those avenues and you still there's something else you need something else. And so I added hypnotherapy into that. So I have in my coaching programs, I have one that's called clear your shit. And basically what we do is we figure out like what is your major pattern and habit that you repeat over and over again in all areas of your life, whether it is work, whether it is home relationships, you know, there is that, that running theme. And we figure that out and then we figure out where it comes from and how to release it. And sometimes that is through hypnotherapy. Sometimes that is through Reiki. Sometimes that is through a series of other exercises. But it just became all of these tools that I thought this is exactly what people need that we're not given. You can't go to the doctor and go, hey, I just need like even smoking cessation. Right. Mm -hmm. When you think about smoking cessation and weight loss, what do they put you on? Medication to do this thing. Right. Why is medication the answer? Why don't we try some other form of, you know, a solution for people? And for me, that was hypnotherapy. And not to say that medication is, is a negative thing, but I found, especially with my son, medication wasn't the answer for him. It was when he came off medication and we did other things. And so 
you know, there are other families that I know where medication is needed and medication will be needed throughout, you know, your child's life or your life. And there's no shame in that. There's no harm in that for you. It is just honoring your body. And that is what is needed for you. Sometimes there are other options. And those are the options that not a lot of people are explained. Not a lot of people are given that choice. And so maybe it works for you. Maybe it doesn't. But if you're not given the choice, you'll never know. Yeah, I think. And and we're we're nowhere near where we need to be with mental health, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it, it you think back, it wasn't too long ago, people were being committed and their brains were being operated on. But um, right. I, you, you said it, you didn't say it directly, but, but you said it indirectly as, you know, healing is not a one size fits all. Because I, I've known people, in my, you know, when I got into meditation, I like to meditate, but I don't do it like I was taught, like the, the, when, when I was taught meditation, it's like, okay, you're going to clear your mind of all thoughts. You're going <laughs> to let them roll off. You're going to sit there quietly in, you know, cross-legged for 45 right. minutes until, and it's like, <clears throat> okay, no, 45 minutes is not going to work for me. <laughs> Sitting cross-legged is not going to work for me. And telling me to not think is like telling, uh, you know, uh, a thirsty man not to drink. Right. Cause I, I, you know, so for me, you know, meditation takes on a different form. It, it's about 10 minutes of solitude. And then I usually put on a little music and then I just, mm-hmm. I get lost in my thoughts with the music. And for me, that's, that soothes my soul and it heals me. Um, but, but for some, you know, they want to be monks and they want to sit on the, well, I guess it's not fair. I don't know if monks actually sit on a mountain and meditate for days on it. But um, I just think it's so important that folks understand that one size doesn't fit all. And doctors, unfortunately, in the, in, in the, um, you know, medical field, it's to them, it's all about throwing medication at you, throwing medication to, to, and like you said, it does help. I've done medication and it helps. There's a time and place for it, but I, I know somebody I'm very close to that, that medication does not help at all. And, you know, and, and so that healing's got to come from a different place. The, um, and I can't believe we're already approaching an hour. I feel like we could probably sit here and talk about this for another hour, but uh, I don't know if people listen for more now. I don't know. You know? <laughs> if, you're, if you're anything like me, you probably wouldn't make it through an hour, but um, so people want to find you. You got your website, CoreyCorrigan.ca, right? You're in Canada, but uh, your your location in this world does not inhibit your ability to coach, right? I'm, I'm guessing a lot of your coaching is remote, especially with yeah, most of what I do is online. Um, I, you know, once we are able to do live events again, I will do live retreats. Um, mm-hmm. But right now, because everything is restricted, um, everything I do is online. So you can book a call with me uh, through my website. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook, reach out and just, you know, and it isn't necessarily one of the things that I like people to realize is I'm not one of those coaches that is going to pitch you from the second you reach out. I don't like that shit and I don't do it. So it isn't about reach out to me. And the first thing I'm going to say is, Oh, you're in your shit. Okay. Well, here's the amount of money you need to pay me for me to help you out. Right. I give people, you know, something, I want to give you a little bit of reprieve. I want you to be able to catch your breath. And at the same time, Is it, you know, something that benefits me 100% because I need to make sure that the people I work with A, are aligned to who I am and how I coach and B, that you're coachable. You might be in your shit, but you might not be ready necessarily to get out of it. You just want to be able to catch your breath and that's okay. It's okay to say, I just need a moment of like, you know, catching my breath and feeling like I'm a human being again. That's cool too. I never say to people, I can't help you. It may just be, you know, a simple thing that I give you or a simple exercise, or, you know, maybe I refer you to my Facebook group. I do tons of live videos in my Facebook group, giving people tips and strategies to kind of help. And I have different freebies that I give away. And so sometimes it's, it's that stuff. I'll refer you to like, here, I'm going to send you this 
freebie that I did and, you know, kind of help you out that way. And then there are the people where I think, you know what, this is where my mastermind or my program will help work it in. But I don't do that from the second I talk to people because I never liked when people did it to me. Yeah. And I thought the same way that medical has this one way solution. I didn't want to be the person that went, you either got to work with me or you get nothing. <laughs> there are lots of different avenues to get help. And again, because it's not one way for everybody, what I teach people is specific to you. Like I'm going to teach you how for you, this is going to work. And, you know, even with meditation, one of the things I tell people is when I first started meditating, right. I did exactly what I was taught to do. So I sat on the pillow and you no know, palms up cross leg and I close my eyes and I'm trying to, you're trying to clear your mind, right? Cause that's what you're yeah. told to do. Turn it off. Like it's a light switch of some sort that you're just going to like, and I, I, you know, for a, a second, maybe there was nothing happening in my brain. And then I was going down the grocery aisles of what I needed to order and what was on sale and what grocery store. And then what forgot to turn over the laundry and there's stuff sitting in the washing machine. I wonder if it's gone moldy already. And, and I opened my eyes and I was 45 seconds in. Like I literally yeah. hadn't even made it to a minute. That's the reality of meditation. Like in all fairness, that's how it starts. But it's the consistency. It's building your meditation muscle, so to speak, and staying with it going. It's not about fighting your thoughts. It's about being aware you're having them. It's about being aware of where they take you. It's like, what am I thinking? And then, okay, now I let that go. And now I'm going to bring this back. Because if you're worried about something or you're stressed about something and I come in and go, hey, by the way, just don't think, you're not going to listen to anything I say and you're immediately going to disconnect from me because you think I don't understand what you're going through. Yeah. So it's important for people to be able to see that Meditation is not a thing you can just, it's not a light switch. You don't just go in one day and all of a sudden you have no thoughts. It's the same way with exercise. You can't just walk into a gym and be a bodybuilder. You have to build it up. Everything we do in this life is that build up. And that's how I, I, I am in my coaching business. What is it that you specifically need? You may only need to learn how to meditate. I will teach it to you. You may need more than that. I will show that to you. And it may just be that we're just not a right fit. Like maybe there's something where you go, you know what? You're just not for me. Maybe I know the person who is for you. And that's important too. Yeah. So as we approach the, the end of this episode, I always ask the last question. Um, and that is, so in your case, I know there's going to be a whole <laughs> lot of people that watch this and they're going to say, you know what? I want to reach out to Corey. I want to talk to her about getting some help, but they're going to take about two weeks before they finally make that plunge. So for those folks, for any folks, really, what is your parting words of wisdom for our listeners and our watchers? So I would say the most important thing for people to know is you're not alone. Mm. And anything that you're feeling and anything that you're thinking, shame it should not be one of them. There is nothing wrong with you. You didn't do it wrong. You're not broken. You're not, you know, like a waste of this or a waste of that. Or nobody wants to hear what I have to say. People want to hear what you have to say. People want to know you're okay. And you're not broken. You're just, you just veered off the path. And you just need help. We all need help. I needed it. My son needed it. You needed it. Everybody needs it. So for us to live in a society where we think that we shouldn't need it, everybody in society does. There isn't a person out there who doesn't need help of some kind from somebody. Yep. Very, very good, good advice. And that's something that I wish, you know, schools, I don't know if they ever will, but that's something. <laughs> these skills, these skills to cope and the skills to yeah. um to learn meditation or hypnotherapy, all these things. I wish they would discuss these with kids because, you know, at a much younger age, because I, I just see it more and more, especially with as connected as this world is. Right. Um, you can have anything at your fingertips in a minute. I, I just feel like the younger generation is, is dealing with mental health. Um, I don't know if the numbers have increased, but I see it a lot more because it's more right. accessible for me to see. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Definitely, um, 
I, that that's great advice and and, and and it's a lifelong practice it doesn't just you're not just cured you there's Absolutely. always going to be peaks and valleys yeah so learning exactly. the skills and that's now. important right nobody has a perfect life and you know i just said i have a group of ladies that i do um in my mastermind we do calls on monday nights and we just had this conversation is that everybody on facebook or social media of some kind has a perfect life with perfect mm. children and perfect home and perfect <laughs> marriage, like they're perfect. Yep. But come off of Facebook into reality, nobody is perfect. So if you're sitting at home scrolling through social media going, oh my God, there's something wrong with me because my life isn't that, their life isn't either, right? Like yeah. that's important to know is that nobody's perfect. Everybody has flaws, everybody struggles, everybody has something going on in the background. And so there's no shame for whatever yours is. Yeah, and that's good. And that and that reminded me of a, so a, kind of a story that I'll just share with you is, so I I got to know a very wealthy couple, and and they had kids, two kids, and they lived in the, you know the 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 high class part of the neighborhood. They had the big house, and yeah. I went to their house one day. I was invited to come over. And I thought, okay, man, this house is going to be immaculate. I mean, they live in like a mansion. And when I walked in that house, there's toys everywhere. There's they, their kids had run amok and and did what kids do, and that's play and get out everything. And and they were just like, yeah, don't let the exterior fool you. Like inside these walls is, you know, it's it's organized chaos. But they loved it, and 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 that was. You know, and I think we all need to embrace that that chaos in our lives and, and learn to to love it and express gratitude for it. So, Absolutely. well, Corey, I've loved having you on the show. Um, I'm going to definitely keep in touch with you because I think I'd like to have more conversations down the road with you. And um, if if you'd be willing, and yeah, for sure, right. it's been fun. It definitely, I'm so glad that uh, we connected, and I love being on the show. Thank you. Uh, well, don't go anywhere. I'm going to go ahead and take us off the stream, but uh, we'll have a chat after the fact. So, all right. And there you go. There you have it. My conversation with Corey Corrigan. She was a wonderful guest and I am so happy that our paths crossed. I hope you all listening enjoyed hearing the conversation as much as I enjoyed having that conversation with Corey. Now, before we wrap things up, I just want to give a big thank you to all of you who have listened here to this podcast, whether you're a first-time listener or you're a return, uh, return listener, thank you so much, especially if you're sticking it out to the end. That, that, that just means you are a real fan. And if you'd like to reach out to me, if you'd like to connect in any way, you can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm also uh, available via email, uh, brian at conqueringeverest.com. Dot com. I'll have all the links, links not only to my contact uh, pages, but also for Corey down in the description below. And if you haven't already, please give this, uh, give this podcast a follow uh, or a like and a like, a follow and a like. Why not both, right? And make sure you share on your social media. Introduce more folks to the Conquering Everest podcast. I would truly, truly appreciate that. I'll be back on Monday, May 10th with another episode. So until then, let me leave you with this. Aim high, be courageous, and go do amazing things.